The, me- the title of the message is tongue-in-cheek. No, I don't actually think Paul had a death wish. But in Acts 21, there's an intriguing question as to why the Apostle Paul is so dead set on going to Jerusalem, right? Incredibly fixated on it. He cannot be turned away, and a lot of people tried to turn him away. Even prophets tried to turn him away, but he is just fixated on going to Jerusalem. Some people have wondered if he actually does have a death wish, but why? is Paul so obsessed with going to Jerusalem? This question is going to be the basis of what we're going to talk about today, which really isn't too much about whether Paul had a death wish. It's why Paul is so intent on doing this. When Paul was in Ephesus, we read in Acts 19.21 that Paul, guided by the Spirit, decided to return to Jerusalem. So the Spirit wants him, God wants him to go to Jerusalem. He is in he is in Ephesus. Um, he, he'd made a, he, before he went to Jerusalem, he decided that he was going to take a trip and say goodbye to a whole bunch of people he knows in, in Greece. And so he did that. So he's even further away from Jerusalem. But he's going to go back. In uh, last two weeks ago, last time we were in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, we read in Acts 20, 22 and 23. And now he's, come, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He is um, saying goodbye to the elders of the church in Ephesus. They had to meet him down the coast a little bit because he didn't have time to go back to Ephesus to say goodbye. We read, he writes, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So, not good, right? Most people have a self-preservation instinct and would probably choose at this point to not continue going to Jerusalem. Every city he goes to, the Holy Spirit warns him, either directly or through people in the city who say, dude, maybe you probably shouldn't go. I, I wouldn't recommend this course of action. But Paul is still intent on going. In our uh, passage today, in Acts 21, verse 4, as he gets back to, to, to Israel, or Israel-ish, in the city of Tyre, he says in Acts 21, 4, uh, well, Luke says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Everywhere he goes, he's urged, don't do it. Don't do it. Why is Paul so intent He faced riots in Philippi and Ephesus. He faced a riot in Thessalonica. He was hauled before magistrates in many cities. He's hunted from place to place. You know, he went to Berea, and his opponents from Thessalonica followed him and raised a huge fuss. And they tried to kill him in Corinth in Acts chapter 20, verse 3, which is why instead of going home from Corinth just by ship straight to Jerusalem, he chose to go this overland route. Uh, so this guy's being pursued, he's being hounded, he's being hunted, right? And he's still determined to go, why? He had every reason to tread lightly and say, you know, maybe I'm going to hang out here for a little while and forget about Jerusalem. We all have ways of being like, oh, maybe the Holy Spirit's saying I shouldn't go to Jerusalem, but he chooses to go. He knew it would end badly. Why? So today we're going to talk about God's will. God has good works for us to do. He has things he wants us to do. He saved us for a reason. We're going to talk about Paul, but we're really, and we're also going to focus on Ephesians 2.10. If you want to write that verse down or if it's important for you to have something, Ephesians 2.10 
speaking about God has work for each one of us to do. Whoever you are, if you're a Christian, he saved you to do things for him. Well, what are those good things? What are the good works? What does God want us to do? And are we willing to do them? That's what I want to talk about today. God has good works for you to do if you're a Christian. What is it? And do you care enough to try to do it? That's what I want to talk about. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Acts, oh, Acts 21, 1 to 14. The screen is wrong. Um, and we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to talk about God's will and the questions that naturally come from why Paul is so intent on going to Jerusalem. So let's pray, and uh, we'll dive into our text. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask that you open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we'd hear your word this morning and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Acts 21, Paul has just said goodbye to the folks in Ephesus, and it says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, said a tearful goodbye, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. So he was here in Miletus, where he said his tearful goodbye to the elders in Ephesus, said goodbye, went on a ship, and sailed. They're basically just hopping down the coast, down the Mediterranean, until they get to Israel. Luke is with him. Notice it says we. Luke wrote the book. He says we. We is not all over the book. It only appears in certain places. Many times Luke is with him. Here Luke is with him. So Luke is a personal eyewitness to everything that's about to happen. We had torn ourselves away from them. We put out to sea and sailed straight to coast. The next day we went to Rhodes and from then to from there to Patara. So you can see on the screen they're just hopping along, skipping down the coast, sort of like, like playing hopscotch on the sidewalk. They're just hopping on down the coast until they get to Israel. After sighting Cyprus, if you look at your Bible maps in the back, if you have maps in your Bible, you can always spot Cyprus because it looks like it has a dagger ready to stab Antioch in the heart. It's, always, it's the island off the coast with the dagger thing on it. But after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. So. He's now made his way to Israel-ish. He just simply has to go south, and he will be well on his way to Jerusalem. So they get to Tyre, and they stay seven days. They didn't, they couldn't, he couldn't spend time to stay with the elders in Ephesus, even though he really wanted to. But because he's so close now, he feels free enough to not have to worry about any more any storms or any traffic jams on the sea. Uh, he stays there seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So again, don't go. Don't go. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, all the Christians entire, the church, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais. Again, they're skipping down the coast. Here they are. Where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, further down the coast. And stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Who knows where we last saw Philip? 
Where did we last see Phil? Do you remember Philip from the early part of Acts? He's the guy who, 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 who told the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, the guy in the chariot who wanted to know about Isaiah 53. He's like, what am I reading? What's this even mean? Philip told him all about it. He was an evangelist traveling all through Samaria. And as soon as he finished his discussion with the Ethiopian eunuch at the end of Acts chapter 8, he went and moved his operations to the coast to Caesarea, where 20 or so years later, here he still is. And Paul needs a place to stay, gets off in Caesarea, calls Philip on the phone, he picks him up at the port, and they go to his place. In Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 21, verse 8. We reach Caesarea, stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, meaning one of the seven uh, servants of the church who were chosen to help and take care of things so the apostles could worry about preaching and teaching. He had four unmarried daughters, verse 9, who prophesied. So spiritual sign gifts were not restricted to men. Here are four women, single women, who have this miraculous gift of prophecy. After we've been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He's in Caesarea. So listen to what Agabus says. This is the strongest warning to Paul. Agabus comes down from Judea. Verse 11, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That is not good, right? Not good. In verse 12, some smart people there. When we heard this, even Luke is saying, when I heard it too, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, which sounds prudent, right? Good advice. Is the Holy Spirit telling him not to go? Or is he telling him to go and just stealing him for the, the confrontation that awaits? Verse 12, verse 13, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So as he's done before, at every step of the way, Paul is, Paul is not having it. He doesn't care. He simply is determined to go, even if he dies. Hence my question in the title, does Paul have a death wish? Verse 14, when he would not be dissuaded, so they kept trying, and it's not working. They kept trying over and over. We gave up, I mean, Luke's, Luke's there, I give up too, he says, and said, the Lord's will be done. That's the passage. That's it. What are you, so this is a Bible, a Bible interpretation tidbit. When you read 1 John, when you read 2 John, when you read Ephesians, you know what to do with what you read, right? It's not that hard. The end of 1 John 5, the last line is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Got it. I can do, you can do something with that. You know what to do with it. What are you supposed to do with what we just read? Make sure you go to Jerusalem if the Holy Spirit tells you to. Is that what you're supposed to leave here with? If the Holy Spirit tells me to go to Jerusalem, I better go. What are you supposed to do with narrative, which tells a story, but doesn't necessarily directly tell you to do anything. When you read this, what are you supposed to do with this passage? What you should ask yourself, so this is my tip, when you have a passage that's narrative, that tells a story, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Acts, it tells a story, it doesn't necessarily tell you what to do. You should ask yourself, what is God doing 
with what he is saying. What is just implicitly there that he's asking us to imitate or do? I've used this example before. If we're driving in the car, because I like the windows down a little bit, if we're driving in the car and my wife says, it's cold in here, what does she want me to do? Roll up the window. Close the stupid window. Did she say close the window? No. She said, it's cold in here. I roll up the window. It's implicitly there, and the more you know your spouse, the more you catch on to these clues, maybe. Maybe you'll always be clueless like me. But I've caught on to at least that. Okay? At least that, I've, I've got it. After almost 20 years, I, I can interpret that. You know, the trash is full. What does she want you to do? Take out the trash. She didn't say it, though, did she? But it's there. Like, it, it's right there, just waiting for you to pick it up. What is God doing with what he's saying in this passage? What's he doing? What I suggest he's doing is he's saying that Paul is determined to do what God has him to do. God has told him to go. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. The Spirit moved him, directed by the Spirit. You need to go to Jerusalem. So Paul is going to go. And all of these warnings, all of these things, he doesn't interpret them as saying, that was a mistake. He interprets them as saying, I'm ready. I'm ready. I know bad things are coming, but I'm still going to go. Paul is determined to do what God has him to do. So then you need to ask, well, what's it have to do with me? Make sure I go to Jerusalem when the Spirit tells me to? What you should do with this example is say, what does God have me to do? What good works has God put me here to do? Why am I here? What does God want me to do specifically? And do I care enough to search it out and to do it? Why has God saved me? Why has he put me here? Why has he made me who I am? What does he want me to do? Why are you here? God wants us to do what he has us to do, just like he wanted Paul to do what he had him to do. That's what we can learn and see right there, just ready to be picked up and put on from this passage. So let's step back and think for a second. Why on earth are, if you're a Christian, why are you here? What are you here for? Are you just here to wait for Jesus? You're a Christian, wait for Jesus. Is that it? God, I've, I've said this before, what is God, if you look at the whole story of the Bible, what's God doing? God is, God is making a community through Jesus the King for his coming kingdom. He's creating a community to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Which is great, but the community isn't here yet, right? The new, the new heavens and the new earth aren't here. So while he keeps building this community, what are you supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? God saved you for a reason. What does he want you to do? In Acts chapter 9, verse 16, he told Paul, he told Ananias, his plan for Paul. Ananias said, man, I don't want to go talk to this guy, Paul. He's a murderer. I want to stay away from this guy. I don't want him to even see my face. And God told him in Acts 9, 16, I, Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's God's plan for Paul. That's God's plan for Paul. Probably because of all the suffering he caused persecuting the church. God has his plan for Paul to reach millions of people, but to himself suffer great hardship. God has a specific purpose for you 
Ephesians 2.10. We are God's handiwork. He's talking about believers who've been, who've been saved, who've been transferred to God's kingdom. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You, if you're a Christian, God has saved you, he's rescued you to do things for him, to do things for his, his gospel. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, oh, I'm going to read a few passages that talk all about this, God has saved us to do things. And this phrase, good works or good deeds, just keeps popping up over and over. For the grace of God, Titus 2, 11 to 14, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What are the good things God has saved us to do? You, good things, good works for Christians to do are not just for super Christians, right? They're not just for special Christians. They're for you. You, specifically. He saved you. He made you who you are. He didn't make you like the guy or gal next to you. He made you you, and he has things for you to do, things he's gifted you for, things he's equipped you for, things you don't think you're ready for, but he, he wants to mold you into. Do we want to do them or not? Eager to do what is good. Jesus, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, what are these good things? Titus chapter 3, this is Paul, verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Your translation might say, unfruitful lives, which is what the Greek actually says. We must devote ourselves to doing good so we don't live unproductive lives. No good work, no fruit, no Christian fruit, not a productive life. Ouch! So what are we supposed to do? Peter, 1 Peter 2.12, lives such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Three verses later, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So the question comes up, well, what good things, I mean, that's a vague term, what good things does God want us to do? Where can you go in the Bible that sort of sums up if you're a believer, what are you supposed to be doing? Like, what umbrella terms sum up these good things? Deuteronomy 10 is a really good one, but I'm going to stick with Micah chapter 6, verse 8 for 300. It says, He has shown you, O man, or O, or, o mortal, as this translation has, what is good. Micah's in the middle of condemning his people for externalism, right? It's all external, it's all fake. Um, and he says, listen, you know what you need to do to be a faithful believer. You know what you're supposed to do. And what does the Lord require of you? Two, three things. Act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
I'm not going to make a list of 100 good works that Christians are supposed to do, but these three categories, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, will get anyone off to a good start to think about, well, what should I do in my life, in my context? Do justice. Add things that are right, things that are good, things that are fair, things that are just. Love mercy. This, your, your ears might have... Uh, kindness or something else, the word's hard to wrap your head around. It means loyal love, a covenant love, a faithful love, steadfast love, the ESV might have. The, the kind of love that Jesus has that's, that's loyal and, and steadfast. And, and that's the kind of love that if we belong, if we're children of God, we're supposed to show outward in a concrete way. Not just in a, in a fuzzy way that floats around, but in a concrete way. How could we show steadfast love, loyal love, mercy? How can we show this? Walk humbly with your God. A quest to do what God would have. A quest to live the life God wants you to live. A, a quest to obey God and his, his revelation for your life. Obey him from the scriptures. Those three things could be broken down in a lot of ways, but they sum up our responsibilities as believers. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. But that's still vague, because what, what does that actually mean in 2022? Like, how do we make this real? How do you make this real? What are good works for Christ in 2022? The answer will depend on your view the answer is going to depend on your view of what the church, how the church should interact with society. That'll determine what good works you think we're supposed to be doing. And I had more here, but I'm going to cut it on the fly. And I'll say this, there, there are two ways you can think of, we're the church, we're supposed to show Christ, how do we do it? You'll either, be, you'll either have a defensive posture or you'll have an offensive posture. The defensive posture to think about good works and everything else is to, I'll call it like the, the Alamo or the little bighorn version, where you, you, you're very concerned about protecting one another from the world outside. Um, the, anyone know the Alamo? Has anyone seen the John Wayne movie? There was another movie too, I think a remake that really bombed at the box office. But the Alamo, right? Whole bunch of, of militia soldiers in Texas, in San Antonio, fighting against the Mexican army that's invading against overwhelming odds. They hunker down, call for help, ration their ammo, fire from the parapets, hold them off as long as they can, and they actually all died. But anyway, I mean, it, it's a bunker mentality. It's like, the world is dangerous. We all need to come in here, come in here, and we need to equip one another so we're prepared to not fall, to not be seduced by the dark side. Um, it's it, a strong emphasis on we need to protect one another so we have answers so that, so that we're not seduced by the evil college professor who's an atheist. Or it's always dangerous out there, so we need to stay inside uh, in the church. And by the way, here's a 10 set DVD curriculum that'll explain to you how the world is dangerous and, and why you need to prepare yourself so your children don't become heathens. I mean, it's, it's, it's all, it's very insulated. It's all very hunker down, run for cover, come inside, and good works, the idea of fruit in the Christian life might be more oriented around preparing ourselves to withstand the battle that's coming, because they're coming. 
Are they coming over the walls? And we need to be ready to give an answer and to protect our children so that they don't lose their faith sort of thing. It's very, it's, it's, more, it's more insular. I'm going to skip the second option, which you could guess it's Plato. Um, what should you, how should the church react to society? Then the other option is to be more offensive, to not be worried about protecting the church from people outside, but anxious to push the gospel and the implications of it, to push God's values out into the world so that people would join God's family. There's, there's not a strict difference between them. Some, some churches manage to meld both, but there's a vibe, there's an ethos, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a feel that either will be more, we need to protect ourselves from the world, and our good works need to be focused on internal things, Bible reading, making sure we know answers, making sure we can refute the Jehovah's Witnesses who come to the door, making sure that, we aren't, that our children aren't seduced by the dark side of the force when they go to community college. It's all based on defense. Protect. Protect the church. Protect the church. Wolves are coming. We need to protect the church. And then there's a more offensive one. We have truth. We need to push the truth out, push it out, push it out, do justice. We need to push God's values and truth out to the world so they can see Christ. And then they might join us. Two very different practical approaches. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because your view, your view of the church and culture if it's defensive, you'll think of good works and fruit differently. If it's offensive, you'll think of good works and fruit very differently. Peter and Paul, when I read all those comments about, you need to make sure that you, your, your light needs to shine before men so they see your good deeds and glorify your Father. You need to live in such a way so that even the pagans will glorify God when he comes back because they'll have seen Christ in you. All of those things I read, they all point not to a Let's hunker down, deploy the snipers to the rooftop, ration the ammo and radio for help. They suggest a totally offensive version. Push our good works out. Push our fruit outward so people out there can see it, not just the people inside these four walls. Push our good works that God has given us to do out so the world can see Christ through what we do. All the things I read from Peter and from Paul suggest that. They all point to that. God has outward-facing good works for everyone to do. For Paul, Acts chapter 9, verse 16, he's supposed to live a life of hardship and suffering as the greatest missionary who ever lived. And that included going to Jerusalem, being arrested, tried to kill him twice after that, testifying before various Roman governors and dying a martyr's death, probably in Rome. That was Paul's, that was what God had Paul to do. For James in Acts chapter 11, his job was to be a pastor of the church in Jerusalem and to die a martyr's death leading the church in Jerusalem. For Timothy, his job was to be a pastor in Ephesus. That was his job. That's what God had for him. For Priscilla, who I mentioned before, her job was to be a church leader along with her husband, bouncing all across the Mediterranean like a ping pong ball. They're everywhere. They're in Corinth. They're in Rome. They're in Ephesus. They're in Corinth. And then they're in Rome again. They go everywhere. That was their job. How do you make whatever God has for you real 
for Jesus in, in an offensive way, not offensive being rude, but pushing outward. What things has God given you to do or could you do for Jesus that pushes the message out? How do you do justice so unbelievers can see Christ? How do you show mercy or loyal love toward others so outsiders can see the gospel in action? How can you walk humbly with God, meaning live the way that he wants you to live, so that the world sees Christ in your life? Not just inside the church where no one else sees it, but people who are here, which is good, but outside so people see it. The vision clinic. I mentioned the Escobars and the vision clinic. That's an example of pushing justice out so they can see Christ. What do glasses have to do with the gospel? Nothing. Theoretically, nothing. But when Jesus comes back, everyone's going to be healed and made right, right? Didn't Jesus heal physical maladies and diseases? Because that's not the way the world's supposed to be. So what our missionaries who we support are doing is they're having a clinic, inviting people to come who have no means to get vision care that they need in the, and where they live, giving them free exams and free glasses and giving them the gospel Showing God's mercy and justice, pushing it out so that some people who get some of these glasses might be interested enough to ask about Jesus, to ask about the gospel, pushing out so they can bring people in. That's what I mean about offensive. Instead of just having a benevolent fund and helping one another inside the church in need, which is, which is important, and Acts chapter 6 shows it, what can we do to push those things, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, out so the world sees it so they can come in? I don't know what you're supposed to do because I'm not you. That's for you to think about, but you can think about it. You can find solutions. I'm going to throw out a few, I'm going to throw out a few random suggestions to, to spur you on. Uh, you need to think. You need to de de devote some time to thinking, what can I do to make some of these things real? And don't use, I'm waiting on God to tell me as, a, as an excuse, because it, it's easy to do that. I know a guy who for 15 years says he's waiting on God to call him to a church, even though he has a Bible college degree and everything. It's been 15 years. I'm thinking, you just, I'm thinking either God doesn't want you to be a pastor, or you're just not doing anything, okay? Do something, right? I'm, every time I speak to him, I'm waiting on God. It's like, I think he's been ready. It's been 15, it's been since 2008. I mean, come on, man. Uh, it's, uh, so don't use I'm waiting on God as an excuse. Though it is, I understand if that is appropriate, but after 15 years, uh, I think the answer's there. Uh, it doesn't have to be a big thing, right? You don't have to sell all your possessions and be a, be a missionary to penguins in Antarctica, okay? You don't have to do some huge thing. Even the most ordinary things show Christ in small, cumulative ways. And it might depend on what season of life God has you in right now. You might be the season in your life where doing justice and, and, and showing mercy and love is being there for your, kid, for your grandkids, being there for your brother and sister, being there for your parents who need you. So instead of selling everything you have and putting your, putting, your, putting your elderly father in a nursing home to be a missionary in Bolivia, maybe your job to show, to show mercy and, and loyal love, maybe the good work God has for you to do is to care for your elderly mom 
your elderly father. Maybe it's to make sure you're there so your grandkids know you when they grow up and you're not just some person they receive a card from at Christmas. So that's what I mean. What good things, so you can be an influencer for Christ in their life. What things can you do? They don't have to be huge things. What things can you do that you can latch onto and say, this is, this is my mission right now. This is my mission this year, this decade, right now, this is what God has me to do. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe your spouse isn't a believer and you're married. And you say, you know, I think God, God's work for me is to be a witness to my wife, a witness to my husband. And that's why God, that's what God is doing at this season of my life. And that's what my focus needs to be. That's the good work that God has given me to do. Maybe you're retiring and you don't know what to do with yourself because now you have all this free time and millions of dollars in your pension fund, right? And you're like, what should I do with myself now? Maybe this is an opportunity for you to begin to serve God in a way that you weren't free to do before. Maybe you can volunteer at options. You're like, I could never do that. Why not? Why don't you just talk to them and see, I have free time and I'd like to volunteer, but I don't know what I could do and I'm not sure I can do anything. They will find something for you to do and find you a place and make you feel welcome. Maybe you want to help kids. Maybe you can contact the Young Life chapter in Olympia or in Yelm or in Rainier or wherever it is you live and say, I'd like to volunteer. And you're like, I don't want to teach anyone. So maybe you can just volunteer and open your home for a place for them to meet. And a leader will be there to teach something. Is there anything you can do to start to get involved in things you never even thought about before because other people always did that? What about the Union Gospel Mission? Like, oh, I don't know about that. Well, they can help you find a place for yourself. And they know what it's like to say, I don't really know anything about this, I'm not sure, but they can help you. What about missions? Missions are always exotic things for extraordinary people. Have you been to the ABWE website to see their short-term missions opportunities? Especially if you already have an, a, reti a set retirement income that you can count on that can help you. Have you ever, have you ever looked at the missions opportunities? Or has it never even occurred to you once in your life? It's fine if it never occurred to you, but have you looked? ABWE.org. Look for missions opportunities. Could you be a missionary? No, that's for other people. Why? Why? I never thought about, well, maybe you could. Maybe there's a season in your life that maybe that's the good work that you can begin to doing or begin explore explore to do. What about a theology degree? What about a simple bachelor's degree or a certificate studying the Bible? That's only for pastors. No, it's not. There's colleges all over this entire country that offer certificates or associate's degrees just studying the Bible for normal people who want to know God more. Who knows what God can, how God can use that in your church or even in your personal life and the people who you do have connections with. That's not impossible. Why am I the only one who needs to have a degree? You can have a degree. Maybe your job already can fit into this category. Does your job involve doing things that God sees as just and good? Is it a good thing to be a caretaker for elderly people who can't, who can't help themselves? Is that, a, is that justice? Is God pleased with that kind of work? Does your work translate into, your work doesn't, isn't meaningless, it couldn't have eternal purpose. So what I'm saying is, I'm throwing out some random options and saying, I don't know what good works God has prepared beforehand for you to do. But if we're faithful Christians, we should be 
seeking and looking and thinking about what would God have me do? Thinking outside the box that we might have put ourselves in and saying, what can I do for the Lord? What would he have me to do where I am, who I am right now? What would the Lord have me to do? And don't think, oh, that's, that, that's enough. That, that, I couldn't do that. Why not? Talk to me. Talk to any of your friends in the church. And talk about it and think about what do you think your, the good work God has put you here to do is. And don't think, oh, well, this is just silly. It's not really that important. It is important, even if it's just being a faithful Christ-like presence in the lives of your grandchildren so they can know who Christ is through you. And one day they'll grow up and they'll go off to college and that season will pass and then you can move on to what's the next thing God would have me to do? But are you looking for the good work that God has for you to do? So did Paul have, did Paul have a death wish? No. He knew what God had him to do. He knew what God wanted him to do and he was obedient to do it. You and I have good work to do. God has saved us. He's prepared it in advance. And he's laid it out for us so we can do it. Christian life is about more than you just getting saved and waiting for Jesus. It's about loving God by representing Christ and his gospel in a million ways as you live your ordinary life. So think about this. Do you, do you think of your life like that with you as a living sacrifice that you present to God for his use? Do you realize that ordinary things that you, that, that, that you could do take on extraordinary meaning when you do them to show God you love him for Christ's glory, to show Christ to other people? So what you should do with this passage is ask God what good work he has for you in this season of your life and then draw up an action plan to make it happen and let your church family know so we can help you make it to happen. Let's do the good work God has planned for us. Whatever it is, even if it isn't as dramatic as going to Jerusalem to be arrested by a mob. There are other things we can do. Let's be willing to think about it and to, be, um, to do the work God has us to do. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Thank you for your mercy, your love and kindness. Help us to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with you. Help us to find and seek out and discern the good work you have for us and help us to make it a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.